Let's be clear on the number, right? I'm going to have a stab at this. Um, 140 million. I don't know. What? 20 billion. 20 billion? 20 billion so far this year. Mark, hi, good morning. It is the 4th of July, which is an important date for Americans anyway. Yeah, it's Independence Day. They still make a bit of a movie about it, eh? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Constantly, just say. Constantly. <laughs> <laughs> well, this weekend, I was backing England against Australia. Oh, okay, yeah. In the cricket, in the ashes. Okay. Now, oh dear. Now the reason I do that is because I back whoever is playing against Australia. <laughs> okay. As a matter of course. Okay. How do you feel about that decision now that the Australians use that cunning move of knocking somebody out? You know, when they happen to be walking down the wicket. <laughs> yeah. Keep keep walking, Bristol. Keep walking. Yeah. Look, I. Uh, I mean, if you're going to play like that, the next thing we'll have Aussie scrum halves pretending to get hurt behind the scrum. You know, that'll be. <laughs> yes. that, yeah, the next thing we'll know, get people scraping bottle tops on the cricket ball. Yeah. I mean, anything's possible. Yeah. <laughs> anything can happen in cricket. No, but at some point I was quite stoked, as you, as you might gather. Right. Because he was, all Stokes was putting up a proper fight, but then eventually he succumbed. But I think I know why they're winning. Okay, hit us. Because recently, Australia, the nanny police state of Australia, right. okay, recently authorized medicinal use of ecstasy. Okay. Now, you know, that's only for people with certain conditions. But I can imagine that it can, you know, find its way into all kinds of hands and particularly on the cricket field, when things are looking tough and someone goes, hey, man, why don't you just hit those stumps, man? You know, <laughs> what the hell? Eh? Yes. <laughs> and the oak will be art, man, you know. So here we go. The world is changing. When you read about that stuff, you do think, you know, they should just put quite a lot of that stuff in the water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah everywhere. <laughs> Particularly, <laughs> yeah, every day is just a little bit better. But what I'm a bit amazed about is that as we advance in science, or one presumes we do, that more and more lenient seems to be shown towards recreational drugs, you know, starting with dacha and now ecstasy, mushrooms, if you like it, and so on. So I don't know whether we're discovering more or whether we're just trying to avoid more trouble. Okay, but let's wait and see. I think there is a sort of big principle that lies behind all of this. And, you know, the government shouldn't be, you know, interfering in what happens in your home. If you're not harming somebody else, it's not the government's business. And when governments try and do it and they sort of launch wars on drugs and stuff like that, what they do, and this has been demonstrated historically, is they create an underworld. And the underworld gets gradually more, more and more violent and richer and richer and richer then they have to spend an enormous amount of money on police to try and enforce this. You know, it's the sort of prohibition story repeated over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, yeah. so obviously you can't judge the consequences based on the tiny minority that misuse. Somewhere you have to take into account that generally people are kind of sensible, you know, or will be sensible, we hope. I generally agree with that logic, although I do think the state has got some sort of role to protect the gullible and the innocent, you know, and that doesn't just relate to the taking of drugs. It relates to the signing up for a funeral policy or the, you know, there are roles where the state must be the guardian of sensibility to some 
limited extent, you know. And so it's a very complicated debate, and the ravages of drug abuse are extraordinary and pervasive. And so let's move on, man. I only just wanted to talk about the cricket <laughs> Anyway, I support what Australia is doing. I think it's very sensible. Thank you very much. Yeah. And it'll be fine. But I do think they should really maybe stop cheating in Cricket. Cricket in the home of... It's just not cricket to cheat in cricket, okay? It's just not cricket. All righty. So, the, listen, the one thing I wanted to talk about was South Africa's competitiveness. I don't know whether you follow these things. Do you take any judicial notice of the international competitiveness rankings? Do you care about them? Yeah, of course I care about them. Whether judicial notice would describe my enthusiasm <laughs> for the subject matter might be brought into question, but... You know, it's self-evident to me as a two-way discussion that we need to import foreign capital and export local goods. So to be world competitive, we just can't in a global village anymore, unless you are the lowest cost producer, you're not in the front of the game. Okay, so yeah, it's absolutely crucial. Have you seen recent numbers? Yes, yeah. So, you know, there's two, there's two big international competitiveness rankings. Actually, weirdly, they both emanate out of Switzerland because the one is by the Institute of Directors, which is the Swiss-based organization, and the other one is the World Economic Forum, which is you know a Swiss-based organization. The World Economic Forum one does all countries in the world, or most, you know, the vast majority of countries in the world. Yeah. The IOD one does only the top sixty-four countries. So. So it doesn't do us, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. But no, this is the thing. I, you know, the, the, I remember, you know, some time ago, we used to wait for this thing to come out. It would always make the front page of the business press. Yeah, yeah. And we would say, oh, we went up one. We went down one, you know. And we have been down, going down so steadily for so long. Yeah. I just think, you know, it just, I didn't see any press about it. Anyway, released last week, South Africa came 60th, one place down. But here's the thing. In 2008, we were 38th. Wow. So we've gone from 38 to 60. They're very academic studies. So lots of different dimensions are taken into account. They're all given a different weighting. They're, you know, from your technological readiness to your education system to your labor system, a whole bunch of financial stats about the state of government, level of trade, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things, they put all of these things into a pot and they come out with a number, right? To me, oh my God, I just look at this and I think, you know, boy, we've got some work to do. <laughs> but listening to the list of metrics or criteria, it wouldn't surprise me that you ain't done so good, you know? And also, you know, international competitiveness has to, there are some blurs, you know, where does Apple make its chips, where do leather goods get made, regardless of where they're branded. So there's a little bit of a gray area about the origin of goods and the source of the skills and all of those kinds of things. But we are shooting ourselves. Is there an index for shooting yourself in the foot? Because I think we do quite well at that. Okay, <laughs> Because, you know, it, no matter what we've got blessed with in natural resources and extraordinarily resilient people, if you sort of can't get basics like getting your export goods through a port or or having an infrastructure system that works or an electricity system that's affordable, let alone works, then you're just going to slowly slide down the, the lowest cost producer equation. And then what happens is 
you start protecting your weakness with tariffs and all sorts of other imposed non-market-driven forces, and that makes you weaker and weaker. It's a little bit like starting a testosterone treatment. Eventually, your body stops producing the stuff naturally, and you need more and more and more of it. And you're a little bit in that conundrum, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, no, 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 totally. You do look at these things and you say, hang on, this is not, you know, this doesn't align with your instinctive view of the world. So the winner this year was Denmark, second Ireland, third Switzerland, obviously. And the US comes ninth, China comes, I think it was 20th. So, you know, I would always put the states top. in the top five. I mean, it just doesn't seem right that they should be languishing down at ninth. I have to say, Ireland is beginning to irritate me. Okay? <laughs> They're beating us at rugby, okay? And they only got potatoes after all, okay? <laughs> no, why the Irish got the potatoes and the Arabs got the oil. Well, the Irish had first choice. Okay, but now the Irish, <laughs> is this a per capita me- measurement or something? They, they're just doing extraordinary well. I'm going to go visit Ireland. Eh? Yes. That's uh, unbelievable. And uh, yeah. yeah, I would have also expected. It does fill you with joy to see, you know, unusual countries doing really well. Yeah. You know, I don't know whether you've been following Estonia. Estonia has, have for some reason or other decided that they are going to be tech central. Yeah. And they're just going to embrace everything tech. And I don't know, this is just a great idea. Just shows what, what a little bit of gumption and governance can do. Tim, I have to say to you that there's not a day goes by that I don't reach out for some news on Estonia before I even have my first <laughs> cup of coffee. It's one of the highlights of my day. Okay. <laughs> I will, I will, you, must, I, you must get out of it, Tim. You've got to get out of it. Okay. I will send you updates yeah. on Estonia. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, Change my life. Oh. No, but there are there are always centers of excellence to be found, and usually they're on purpose. Usually they're not just because of naturally given advantages. Usually they have something to do with a really properly thought through government policy, maybe a bit of natural resources, and some determination to make a space. And if you put that kind of effort into any particular thing where you've got half a chance, you're going to beat all the guys that don't. Yes. Okay? Yeah. And it, I think a lot of these leading positions in whatever metric are on purpose, are, are where common interest prevails. I mean, take, talk about rugby, take New Zealand. New Zealand have got, you know, less than 10% of our population and, 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 and they've got the best rugby team in the world. Oops, I didn't say that the World Cup's coming, but it's because they've got nothing else to do there, right? So they decided, well, how do we get visas? Okay, well, let's make rugby our game. Okay, anyway, specialization isn't a mistake. Yes. Expertise, leadership, all of these things never happen by mistake. Yeah. So let's talk for a moment, if you don't mind, about executive pay. Now, you don't want to name names here. No. But there is a banker in South Africa who is going to earn 163 million bucks this year. Yeah. So now that banker is not as it happens you, I don't think, unless you... sadly. (laughs) In fact, it is a little bit more depending on your exchange rate, but... But I, I actually, it's uh, this is the subject of my column this this week, which comes out on Thursday. I I don't have a problem with the number. You don't. You should expect that systems where remuneration is a consequence of out 
put a consequence of profitability, a consequence for all the stakeholders that is positive, you should occasionally expect outliers to come into focus. Okay? Right. What they never report on is when you've kind of had a bad year, okay, and, and the same thing. So I, I'm in the school which says, let's define success. Let's all the stakeholders participate in the success. And if you are an element that's necessary. So in business, we have the, the capital providers and the management executives. That's just to be crude, okay. Right. If the executives produce the result that they were funded and produce extraordinary returns. They're entitled to a small fraction of that. How big or small the fraction is, I don't know. But if you were to look at any executive pay, if you were to look at any soccer player's fortune as a percentage of the gate, if you were to look at, you know, all of these things where you only get rewarded a fraction of the success, I'm for it. Right. In fact, I'd go further. I'm for it even in government. If we had in government outcome-based remuneration structures, okay, which said if the electricity availability factor moves up from 50% to 54%, there's something in it for the people that made it happen. Now, we'd have to define reasonable boundaries given the size of that utility and so on. Right. But the opposite is worse. And what we have is fixed term contracts with fixed pay, regardless of the outcome and regardless of the effort. Yeah. The logic behind that doesn't create value. I mean, I agree with you in general, but you know what, what pains me about it, there's a lot of things that pain me about it. First of all, the way it's structured around the world is related to share price, obviously. Yeah. So if you happen to get appointed the head of Anglo-American when the platinum price is, you know, sort of $500 an ounce or whatever it is, for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with you, the platinum price doubles, right? Then the share price of your of the company you work for doubles and suddenly you are just covered with money. The, the link with the share price is both sensible on most occasions and ridiculous on some occasions. You know, that's, that's the first problem. Yeah, the flaw in that particular example is the design. You should be, to some extent, immunized from exogenous factors. Okay, both ways. Yeah. You know, so if you walk into a company and the platinum price falls out of bed and so on. So the, the construct should have limits. And, and in fact, I think a limit did apply here in this particular case that you introduced. And, and there should be an elimination of exogenous variables, things about which you could do nothing, positive or negative. But the principle of having a tiny piece, if you can fill a stadium right. every Saturday, you 10 soccer players, you can get a piece of the gate. Because if you and I went to go and play soccer, no one would pitch up. Okay. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> and so, yeah, if you're a rock star, look at uh, what's that the woman who's, who's touring at the moment, Taylor Swift, yeah. $13 million a night. Yeah. It does, it does make Farney Titi's $179.8 million annual payback in Rand looks sort of modest. All she can do is sing. Yes. Okay. And dance a bit. But does she fill a stadium? Yeah. Can she have a percentage of that gate? Sure. I think she gets a lot of it. But okay, so then that's, that's the one thing. So you say this is a matter of design. I'll tell you what, my other biggest problem is that I actually, when I look at, you know, sort of executive performance, we can call it, or a yeah. slightly scrungy word, but I'm always much more respectful of people who manage to save declining businesses than I am of people who make successes out of very successful businesses. 
I don't know why that is. I mean, it's just harder to do. You know, I've been part of organizations which are, you know, declining. I tell you, the the it's just like a a, a, a train. It's like rushing off the tracks and nothing you can do seems to get the damn train back on. It's sort of, it's grinding, 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 grinding. And it's a much harder job than running an organization which has an existing market share, has a fantastic brand, has a huge history. Yeah, of course. All you're doing there is just, you know, keeping the train on the tracks. No, I get that. And that's why business rescue practitioners make good money. And whenever they make good money, everyone goes, wow, you guys got paid too much. You go, excuse me, we got 5% of what we got back for you guys. So what's your, you know, yes. there should be some reasonableness tests. There should be an elimination of things that you had nothing to do with. Right. But then if you make it happen, you're allowed a piece of it. I firmly subscribe to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's got some flaws, obviously. One of the flaws is people are not in a hurry to leave. Okay. Right. <laughs> we have the, the C street blocking up with people full of options and things of that nature. Anyway, I think it's better than fixed pay regardless of outcome. Yeah, no, I must say I, I really like the idea of an incentivized government's pay structure. Yeah. You know, on, on the senior level. I mean, I think it just changes everything. You know, it's, it's potentially just changes everything. I mean, we all perform about what ministers earn and their perks and stuff. Well, really, no one in the private sector would accept that kind of paycheck. No leading professional would accept that. They would say it's not enough. Yeah. And the reason we whinge about it is not because of the amount of money. It's because of the output that that amount of money produces. If you produced a minister who saw, or a, or, or a civil servant who solved Transnet, like how many billions would that save us a year? Like, you know, yes, 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 yeah. 200 billion or something. So if you found this extraordinary person. And the opposite, how much would it cost us, which yeah. we are learning, yeah. by the way, yeah. when something doesn't work. I'll do some research on this. I think it's an interesting topic. Is there any country in the world that has an incentivized system for public sector employees and how does it work? It'll be kind of fun to know. I also need to do some research, but I think it manifests where you have public-private partnerships, where you have a mix, where you have a mix and that that mix is required to attract the sort of expertise because, you know, then it does work. I think if you just have civil servants that are on fixed contract, fixed term, you're not going to achieve the same result. Anyway, I think we've... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why it's one of the big theoretical advantages of state-owned enterprises. Tim, I wouldn't mind at all if someone solved, you know, our water problem and got paid a hundred million rand a year because I promise you we're losing billions because of it. All, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, yeah. I wouldn't mind at all. Yeah. We must talk at some stage about your efforts in pitletrine toilets at some points. So it's extraordinary work, but let's let's keep it for a yeah, for its we'll, own discussion. We'll do it some time. I mean, the short the short answer is we just decided to do something and it took us less than three months from meeting each other to having installed flushing toilets in a school that hadn't had such a thing for working for the last 110 years. So you just got to get and do it. Now, our motivation isn't money. Our motivation is a, a far greater currency of reward, which is, you know, like doing something that's worth doing. So yeah. we can mix all of those things together. We might have a chance. Okay, so now we've decided to introduce this new section, which is called our number of the week. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry if that's an overstatement of the. I'm going to go first. Okay, <laughs> you go. You hit us. <laughs> okay, my number of the week is this: is that on the sixth of July, which is the day after tomorrow. Okay, the Earth will be twenty-two point five million kilometers further away from the sun than it normally is on average. And the distance will be 
152 million nine and 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 nine a lot a lot okay wait listen carefully listen carefully okay it'll be a slight zoomer moment and the reason for that is the earth's orbit is not around it's slightly lopsided and so we get closer and further from the sun so beat that Right. Well, you know, I've just been looking this week at the sales of electric cars around the world. I mean, it really is incredible. I mean, I just, yeah. you know, they really are taking off. It's now sort of 10%, a little bit less, 8% of sales in the US, but it's like 30% of sales in, in China. But anyway, here's the question. How much petrol do you think has been saved so far through the use of electric vehicles in the US. In other words, how much less, given you know the the amount of mileage that American drivers do? Yeah, you mean as a percentage or as in gallons? I'm going to have a stab at this. A lot. Okay, okay, okay. No, no. But let me let's be clear on the number, right? So this is how many miles have been traveled without using petrol yeah. in the past year? Um, 140 million. I don't know. What? 20 billion. 20 billion? 20 billion miles have been traveled wow. on American roads without using petrol so far this year. Yeah, yeah but you know... It's a big country. <laughs> <laughs> so this is around about ten so percent of the of the mountain. of the mileage now, because you know it's ten percent of the cars, right? Or eight yeah, percent. Yeah. So so that means around about eight percent of the total mileage travelled by Americans is now not being powered by petrol. I mean, this is significant, right? I mean, isn't it? There's one caveat. As long as you're not using diesel to generate electricity. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we should wrap it up there. Thanks for the chat. And Thanks, man. See you guys next time. We'll catch up next time. Okay, bye. Cheers, cheers. This show is part of the Africa Podcast Network. The biggest pod network on the continent. For sales inquiries, please contact us at info at africapodcastnetwork.com.